glad to see you all again. Let's pray, and we will begin looking at the book of James. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, O God, we praise you and thank you. Thank you that you are the God who made us and made us for yourself, that, Lord, for each of your saints, they are the apple of your eye. They are beloved. They are thought about. Lord, you have predestined their salvation. You have brought them to where they are, and you, Lord, by your Spirit, are working powerfully in them even now. Lord, we thank you for your word and its instruction to us. We ask, Lord, for hearts that are ready to receive it, that we, accepting your word, would be encouraged in our faith, that we would be brought nearer to our salvation, that we, O oh God, would be built up, edified, and brought to perfection one day in your everlasting kingdom. We pray for your help in studying. We pray for your blessing on your word today in our church. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the book of James, um, I would like to begin by just asking uh, with you all's um, experience with the book of James. It's one, I enjoy the book very much. Um, I think it's extremely helpful. But I would, I would love to hear any of you who have ever taught it or studied it or found um, something remarkable about it, uh, anything. Um, I don't know if you all read my blurb in the bulletin concerning the book of James, but Martin Luther had an interesting comment about it, calling it an epistle of straw. Um, at points uh, in the history of the church, some have disputed whether it belongs to the canon. Um, now, to Luther's credit, when he printed his New Testament, he did include the book of James. He knew better than to try to take something that God had placed there and remove it. He also preached from the book of James uh, no less than five times. He quoted from the book of James and did call it a good book. Part of the difficulty for Luther was that he, had, he, he divides all scripture into law and gospel. Now, those are two grammatical categories, right? Imperatives and indicatives, and we recognize that distinction, but for Luther and then some subsequent Lutherans, the law-gospel distinction became a law-gospel dichotomy. And they separated them not just, you know, like we observe the difference between a promise and a command, but we also recognize that the gospel includes both promises and commands. And so Luther's framework with the book of James didn't allow him to see the gospel in the book of James. Um, but the book of James is all gospel. The gospel includes commands, even as Jesus said, right? He said that the gospel of the kingdom includes repentance and faith and obedience. That's part of the gospel. Um, so that was one difficulty that uh, people have had with the book of James, and I think that dichotomy of law and gospel force them into that. and That's a good lesson for all of us that we don't allow a theological framework to um, make let us put ourselves over the Bible. We should always submit ourselves to God's word and let him teach us rather than us try to instruct or correct him. Uh, but I, I did begin this by asking if there were any, any thoughts. Yes, Denny? I, I recently... As of today, this morning I read something about uh, obedience and uh, sanctification and how uh, we're, we're called to obey, Yes. and yet we can't totally obey, yeah. and, and, and the difficulty with, with that, and yet 
in God's providence and sovereignty. We can obey, yes. uh, but our good works, on the other hand, when we do obey, they're still in with sin. That's right. Yes, and, it, and it's interesting because you're right when you say, um, but by God's grace, we can obey. Now, because of the remaining corruption in us, because of our own desires for sin, we do not always obey. And when we do obey, we oftentimes have mixed motives in it. Sometimes we're not doing it by faith. Sometimes we're not seeking God's glory. Sometimes we're doing it for appearances, right? There's all these things mixed up in there. But there's an interesting thing about our obedience as Christians is that just as God approves our persons, right? In Christ, he approves of us in spite of our sin. So too with our obedience. Our obedience in Christ is approved of by God in spite of its imperfections, right? In spite of our mixed motives. All of those things, um, God still is pleased with our meager obedience. Now, we must understand that our obedience is actually a consequence or an effect. And it's a consequence or an effect of God's grace in us, right? And so that way, as God is blessing us for obedience, what he's actually doing is crowning his own works, right? God is taking a sinful creature and performing in that sinful creature good works, which then God is pleased to crown. So God is actually um, blessing his own works and, and rewarding his own works in the Christian. Any, any other thoughts? Yes, Mr. Coffin. Yeah, so, because <clears throat> I've kind of been reading through James, actually, um, prior to you making the announcement that you were going to be doing for your class, but it, it's interesting because you have, you know, 1 John and James. So you have 1 John that's sort of the you know, giving assessments on assurance of salvation um, and, you know, those kind of tests that you can sort of look at with yourself. Whereas James really seems like this sort of field guide for living the Christian life. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and he, he, he starts off assuming that these are, you know, these are all brothers in Christ yes. and, you know, saying, here's how you should look at trials. Giving perspective, giving encouragement, how to walk through these things and then just... Yeah what that looks like in your Christian life and how how what you do and what you believe, how it all works together. Yes. So it's a, it's a, it always seemed like a very practical book. Yes, and that's a good way to say it. Two things you said that I found really helpful are that James is assuming he's writing to Christians. And the second thing is, is it's a practical book, right? It, it, it is very um, earthy, practical, day-to-day -day type things. And in many ways, and we'll note this as we go through, James is like the book of Proverbs. Um, not entirely and strictly like Proverbs, but there are similarities. He uses a proverbial style many times. So if you are familiar with the book of Proverbs, it will help you in the book of James. But also keep in mind, the book of Proverbs was written to covenant people. Written to people who are a member of the church, professing faith under the covenant, um, and presumed to be believers. And so a lot of the things in Proverbs uh, would be quite burdensome to the unregenerate. But to the regenerate soul, to the person who is a believer, they are actually words of life. And that's what James is like, right? He, he's writing to, he's assuming, he's, he's writing to believers and assuming then that by the grace of God they will benefit from these things. Very good. 
All right, anything else? All right, very good. Well, yeah, go ahead, Jake. You can say I think it's like the Roman Catholic's favorite book. Yes, yes, you're right. And and we will, uh, so J he said that the Roman Catholics enjoy the book of James, right? And and I'm sure they do. In fact, um, as, re as Protestants, we say that we are justified by faith alone, right? And Roman Catholics like to point to James chapter 2, where the only place in the whole Bible where the words faith and alone are together is where James says, you are not justified by faith alone. And on the surface, that's, a, that's an interesting point, isn't it? And we will, we, will dis, we will explore that more as we come to it. However, we have to say that, um, first of all, in, in the passage in, in James chapter 2, um, he uses the example of Abraham to say that Abraham was um, not justified by works alone, but by his, or excuse me, by faith alone, but by his works, because he offered Isaac, right? But there's something that's really important here, is that when he, when James refers to Abraham's offering of Isaac, that's Genesis chapter 22. Now, who can tell me where the Lord pronounced Abraham righteous? It was Genesis chapter 15. Several chapters and, and years before he offered his son Isaac. In other words, we, we note immediately that if we follow the timeline, we see that Abraham was a justified man. He's, he's like the audience of the epistle of James. And so what is being described in chapter 2 cannot be referring to God's declaration of Abraham's right being counted righteous. It has to be speaking of something differently. And the traditional way that Protestants have said that is that um, Abraham proved God's declaration when he obeyed and offered his son, right? He, he proved that he was um, <clears throat> declared righteous. He proved his genuineness of his faith, and he was justified, sometimes people will say, in the eyes of men, like outwardly. He showed that his faith was genuine. Right? So that's a very good point. And we, like I said, we will explore that more, but, but immediately the, the, the real um, tell there, I think, is that um, Abraham being declared righteous in chapter 22 is subsequent by many years to his having been declared righteous in Genesis 15. All right. Alrighty. So let's look then at uh, when we speak of James. We call it the epistle of James. He identifies himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is typically assumed by the way that he does this that he is a well-known James in the New Testament time, right? He he doesn't, you know, give um, a genealogy. He doesn't state his position. He doesn't um, give any biographical information. So the assumption is, is that the people to whom he is writing are going to know who James is. That's helpful for us. And the reason why is that we assume that it's probably a James that is elsewhere mentioned in the New Testament. Now, there are at least three, perhaps as many as five Jameses in the New Testament. And the reason why I say three to five is that sometimes it's not clear which James is being referenced, okay? Um, I, I take the view tentatively that there are five, but we could collapse those into three if um, James the son of Alphaeus is also um, James the less, and if um, James the father of Judas is also another James, okay? But let me just briefly go through the Jameses you will encounter in the New Testament. By the way, uh, in English we say James, in the um, Greek New Testament, it's Jacob. 
So James is Jacob, Jacobus. Why, why did we not translate it? As uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think the English translation, the, what was the name of the uh, prominent English translation in the um, 17th century, the King James Version? I think James is a more English name, right? Um, but yeah, he's, he's Jacob, okay? But in English, he becomes James. <laughs> um, all right, so the first is James, the son of Zebedee. That would be John the Apostle's brother, all right? He was one of the twelve. He was uh, the Bonergis, right, the sons of thunder. The Lord should be called fire down upon them, and Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Um, he uh, was killed by Herod. You'll read about that in Acts chapter 12, and, and that was probably around the year 44, okay? Now, he would be a good candidate for writing this book because he's an apostle, Right? And because he had been with Jesus, um, and because he's the brother of John, who also wrote Bible books. But there are some reasons why we don't think that he was the author. One is, he probably was dead at the time of the writing of the book of James. Okay? Um, he doesn't seem to have been alive when James was written, so that's one reason. The other is, the author of the book of James does not identify himself as an apostle. He just says James. Um, think, for instance, in Paul's letters, when he, he introduces himself, he says, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God, right? And so that it does seem to indicate then that this James, by not calling himself an apostle, may be distinguishing himself from James the apostle. All right, secondly, James, the son of Alphaeus, he too was an apostle, and there are the references you can find him. <clears throat> Uh, we don't know very much. He's mentioned several times, but we don't really know much about him. Uh, but also, he was an apostle. Therefore, it seems he is not as likely of a candidate. And then there is James the Less, the brother of Joseph, who he would be the son of Mary, the wife of Clopas. Um, we, we think that he's called James the Less, perhaps to um, distinguish him from another James, or it could be um, he calls him, he's called James the last to refer to his stature. Okay, the, the, the word is uh, micron, like micro, little. Um, come on, all, how you doing? Come on in and grab a, grab a hand up. Good to see you. Um, anyways, he is not a likely candidate for this because he has that distinctive title, James the last. And, you know, if the gospel writers refer to him as James the Last, in order to distinguish him from the other Jameses, um, James merely calling himself James, a slave of Christ, doesn't seem to have that same um, ability to identify him. All right, then there's James, the father of Judas. By the way, it's Judas, not Iscariot. Do you know that Jesus had two disciples named Judas? One was Judas Iscariot, and the other was Judas not Iscariot. How would you like to have that be here? I'm Judas not Iscariot. <laughs> but, but he also, um, he would have been an apostle, one of the twelve. So we, we don't think that he is the author. And then the last one, James, the Lord's brother. All right. Now here's what we know about James, the Lord's brother. He did not believe in Jesus at first, right? In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. But 
he did see the risen Christ. Christ appeared to him. Paul tells us about this, that the Lord Jesus, after the resurrection, appeared to James. And then we next see James being with the apostles and the women and Mary after the ascension of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. He's there. So apparently by this time, whether it was through seeing the risen Christ or some other means, he's now a believer. All right? He became a leader in the Jerusalem church. You see that in Acts chapter 12 and in verse 20, uh, excuse me, in, in, in chapter 21. And then he is the man who presided over the Jerusalem council. Remember the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15, there was a dispute about circumcision and uh, the ceremonial law and what parts of the law the Gentiles had to follow. And the apostles gave a report and then James stood up and said, brothers, listen to me. And he gave a speech. Well, that's this James, okay? Um, so traditionally, the church has identified James, the brother of the Lord. Now, when I say traditionally church has identified, I don't mean you, you know, exclusively and without exception. There are some in the church who have thought otherwise. But beginning with uh, Origen in about 185 uh, AD, and um, then again with Eusebius in uh, the 4th century, um, the church pretty much said that uh, James, the Lord's brother, was the most likely candidate. Um, and the, re the reasons that they would do that were, are based upon testimony. In other words, people who, you know, in the church said, yeah, that was James, the Lord's brother. Um, based upon the circumstances, such as what we discussed, right? This man was dead. He didn't write it. This man uh, was an apostle. He would have called himself an apostle. This man... So there were circumstances in their lives that would make one candidate more or less likely. Then the style. The style of the book of James matches the little bit of information we have about the Lord's brother. And we'll talk about some of that in just a minute. And then the content of the book of James. And we're going to look at some of that too. But there are several similarities and parallels between the book of James and other things. Okay, so for instance, um, James and Peter apparently were both uh, leaders in the church in Jerusalem. It seems like Peter was there, and then James um, at another time was there. But they were closely related. And there are a lot of similarities between Peter and James. So this would make sense. If Peter and James were serving in the same church, or if they had a lot of connections, a lot of ties together, they would have similarities in their preaching and, and writing. Another is, is that James' evidence is, and there, there's a chart on the last page we'll look at later, um, he refers to Christ's Sermon on the Mount dozens of times. In fact, every, every uh, proposition, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount is repeated in the book of James. This is someone who is close to Jesus and who heard Jesus' teaching. This would make sense for James. Another, and we'll look at it now, the similarities between James and the Jerusalem Council, the speech, okay? So there are there are four main verbal parallels between James's speech in Acts 15 and then in the book of James. The first is his his greetings. He likes to be, you know, this this author likes to begin with greetings. And that's exactly how he began his speech at the Jerusalem Council. Now that's not an airtight case, but it is a you know that that does fit his style. Right? And then uh, listen, my beloved brethren, is what he says in James 2.5. 
and back in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, he says, Brethren, listen to me. This is uh, a man who has a similar vocabulary. And then in James 2.7, he refers to that noble name by which you are called. And then Luke records James, the Lord's brother, saying, The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That key phrase, called by my name, the name by which you are called, are verbally, you know, in, in Greek, they're very similar. So it seems like this man has a similar vocabulary. All right? And we'll look at some of those other parallels in a moment. But first we'll consider the audience. In chapter 1, verse 1, James addresses to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Um, all right, 12 tribes, you know, is going back to Israel's history. Right? The 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but 12 tribes, he's not speaking here literally of the 12 tribes. But 12 <coughs> tribes became a, a figure of speech for believers. Right? We, as, as Presbyterians, we believe in covenant theology, meaning that the church is Israel. Right? We are the true Israel. Um, and so and there's a sense in which we are the 12 tribes. Because the 12 tribes is a figure of speech for God's church. But it has a, a uniqueness um, in the early part of the church to distinguish Jewish Christians. Right? And remember, the first million or so Christians were mostly Jewish. Right? It, was, it was people like the disciples and, and James and um, all of the converts in Judea and Samaria and all of that. Right, So all the first Christians were primarily Jewish. But something happened in the book of Acts. Persecution broke out. Remember, Stephen was killed, and the church was scattered. And then um, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of nowhere. All right, That's the diaspora. That's the scattering. The church was scattered. And so I think James, probably from Jerusalem, is writing to the scattered Jewish Christians. Um, so, And you will notice some of this in James's. Uh, James is writing, he, he writes using terminology and concepts and things that um, would have been especially persuasive and familiar to Jewish Christians. Okay, for example, he, he refers to the synagogue. That's a very Jewish concept. Um, he quotes the Old Testament many, many times. He uses um, phrases that um, Jews, because of their familiarity with the Old Testament, would have been very familiar with. So uh, we think that James is probably, like I said, writing to Jews who had been dispersed or scattered after the persecution broke out. Um, all right, the date of this book, and again with you know dating Bible books, it's always tenuous and there's a range, right? It's not like modern um, history where they they give a, a you know a, a month, a day, and an hour. Right, that that's not ordinarily the case, and James does the book does not state a date, so we don't have to. We're not compelled to believe in a particular date, but we can surmise. Um, and if it was indeed written by James, the Lord's brother, then it probably was somewhere between 44 A.D., which is when he became a leader in the Jerusalem Church, um, and sometime in A.D. 62 when he was martyred. Um, James was um, thrown down from the temple, from the pinnacle of the temple, 
Um, probably the same place. Remember when, when uh, Satan took the Lord up there and tempted him and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, right? Um, James was thrown down from there. He survived, but then was beaten to death by clubs. Um, and so certainly he did not write the book after his death. Um, some scholars narrow the um, date range between 46 and 49, allowing time for him to establish his ministry in Jerusalem, and then um, saying that perhaps the writing of James took place prior to the Jerusalem Council. And one of the reasons is, is this is an argument from silence, but some find it somewhat helpful. There is no reference to the issues at the Jerusalem Council in the book of James. There's no hint of that controversy, and it would seem that if the Jerusalem Council had already happened, and James were writing to Jewish believers who might undergo persecution, he would want to refer to those issues that came up at the Jerusalem Council about Gentile Christians in the law. And that's not present in the book of James. All right. Um, any questions at this point? I'll just pause for a moment and um, give you a moment to, to bounce back. And, yes, sir? So <clears throat> you say he quoted uh, the Old Testament. Do you know, was he quoting uh, directly from with the Hebrew or the Septuagint? That's a good question. So the question is, was he quoting the Hebrew or the Septuagint? Here's the difficulty that we often find. Um, sometimes scholars will confidently state, so-and-so quoted the Septuagint here. So-and-so quoted some lost tradition here. And so-and-so quoted the Hebrew here. Um, I think sometimes it's difficult to know, and here is why. If, if James were to take the Hebrew text and translate it into Greek, <coughs> Um, it might look very much like the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew. So in other words, we don't always know whether an author is quoting the Septuagint or he's merely translating the Hebrew into Greek. And guess what? When you translate Hebrew into Greek, it happens to look like Hebrew translated into Greek, which is what the Septuagint is. So I don't know. Uh, to, that's the, the long way of saying it. I'm not certain. And I don't know that we can always claim to know that they're quoting the Septuagint. It could simply be the case that he, um, being a Hebrew who is uh, fluent in both Hebrew and being a Galilean, being fluent in Greek, was simply translating it. Okay, so he could have been translating the Hebrew or he could have been quoting the Septuagint. But one thing I will say is this. It does seem to me that in the time of Christ and the apostles, we know the Septuagint was around. Okay, and the Septuagint, well, just it's the the um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, and that it came about prior to the time of Christ, um, and was well in service by the time of the New Testament. And it certainly was um, distributed and available in the Greek-speaking world. And and some um, Hebrews probably relied upon it because a lot of them had lost their Hebrew language, going back to the time of the captivity. Right? You think, remember in the book of Nehemiah that the Jews couldn't even speak their own language? Um, okay, so we know that the Septuagint was about. We know that people were using it. And so one thing I want to say is oftentimes the Lord or, or the apostles, they quote scripture, and they could be quoting the Septuagint, or they could be quoting the Hebrew. Um, but the point is, is that translations of God's word are still God's word. Right? So if Paul 
is referring to the book of Genesis, but he happens to be quoting it in the Greek, he's still quoting God's word. You see, because to translate God's word into another language doesn't deny its inspiration. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Okay. All right, anything else? Yes. Um, the method of his death, that's yeah. not in the Bible, right? So that's not. That, what his, do you know what historian that would be? Yeah, Josephus. Okay. That's yeah, it's in the historian Josephus. Yeah, and, and I should mention that, right? There are, okay. So uh, they, I want to, to just make a distinction between um, infallible facts and an infallible history, and that's recorded in Scripture. Okay, like when you read Genesis or you read the book of Acts, that's God-inspired history. That's the facts as they happened. And then we have historical facts recorded by, you know, other historians, which we consider basically reliable, right? They're basically, I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't really dispute Josephus. And, but I accept, as humanly speaking, I accept his history as human history. And that's, a, by the way, I would point out that's a, um, how do I say, that's an interesting um, problem in the, the realm of biblical scholarship, is that scholars are always trying to make Bible history line up with secular historians. Right? Um, but that's the wrong way of doing it, isn't it? The secular historians are a data point for us, but the Bible is the only inspired record of history in the world. And so what we should be saying is, if the Egyptian um, king list doesn't match up with what we read in the Bible, well, then the Egyptians are wrong, <laughs> right? I mean, or if the, you know, if the, the yeah, if the uh, Greek history doesn't match up with what we read in Scripture, well, then obviously they are wrong because the Bible is the only inspired record of history. So yes, it's Josephus, um, and he's, uh, generally considered to be reliable, and, and there, I don't see any obvious reason to dispute it. Um, and, and Josephus, by the way, did not have a, a motive. Uh, Josephus was not a Christian. He was a, a Jew, and um, he didn't have a motive to em embellish or promote Christianity. So his record of, of certain things re pertaining to Christianity He's considered a, a hostile witness in a sense. And so he didn't have a reason to flatter Christians. All right. Um, James's purpose, and, and I should have written a longer on this maybe, but simply he, he's writing, as we'll discover, to exhort Christians to live out their faith, right? To prove the genuineness of their faith, to live according to the promises they've believed, to um, be Christians in their thoughts and actions. Okay, not just with their mouths, but with not, not just with their profession, as it were, but with their whole lives. All right, so here are some characteristics. As I said, James is very proverbial and persuasive in style. And when I say persuasive, I mean he uses a style of rhetoric in which he is trying to move his readers to action. Right? He wants them to do something with the information. And he's seeking to persuade them, to move them, to, to get them to change something, to get them to correct a behavior, to get them to, to do something different. All right? He employs many aphorisms. An aphorism is a short, memorable saying. Right? Well, the cat's away, the mice they play. And an aphorism is kind of like a proverb. 
right? And so James, in, true to his proverbial style, uses many short and memorable st things. Um, he uses a lot of illustrations, very um, visceral, right? The tongue, and uh, the tongue is like the rudder on a ship. You know, how a, a little tiny rudder can steer a whole ship. And he says that's the tongue in, in man. So he uses a lot of illustrations, quotations, and allusions. Um, so, so a quotation of the scripture is when someone just quotes it word for word and uses the same words. And an allusion is, is when someone refers to the scripture, not necessarily word for word, but there's enough similarity there that people familiar with it get it, right? So he does that often. Now he mentions five Old Testament saints as examples. He mentions Abraham and Isaac and Rahab and Job. And Elijah. So he, he refers to Abraham as you know the, the friend of God, the man of faith, who showed the genuineness of his faith by doing what God said. Okay? And then Isaac he only mentions briefly, but Isaac being the child of the promise, um, the one whom Abraham almost sacrificed, right? And then Rahab, she shows the genuineness of her faith by um, receiving the spies. Right? By receiving Joshua and the spies. So Rahab um, is an example of someone outside of the church being converted through the witness of the church and then becoming loyal to God. Right? After she had been converted, she is now, she changed her allegiance. She's now a part of the people of God. And then Job, of course, is the example of perseverance and patience. And then Elijah, and he's an example of a man who prayed earnestly. He was a man like us, and he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not. Okay? All right, and then the book of James is characterized by being filled with exhortations. An exhortation is um, kind of like a command. It's telling you to do something. Trying to compel you to, to move a certain direction. Um, admonitions, that's sort of like, you ought not do that, right? And corrections, this is wrong. And then it emphasizes, as Ron said earlier, practical Christian ethics. Things like our speech, um, things like taking oaths uh, or being presumptuous, things like making plans. Um, you know, so very, very practical things, things that we should be putting into use in our daily lives. All right, I'm going to pause there for a moment. Could someone tell me the time? 52. 52, thank you, honey. Uh, any questions at this point? All right, very good. Um, so let's look at uh, references to the Old Testament in James, and you see there are, there are several of them. Obviously, we, we won't take the time today to read these, but I do hope that it, this would be a resource for you. If you want to study this more, you have here, you can look at, for instance, James chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. And continues into verse 11. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. And he's talking about the rich man and how He's going to fade away like the flower does, right? And you know Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so James is quoting that, which there's a similar passage also in the book of Job. Job makes a similar statement, okay? Um, you'll see 
in this list, look at the books that he's quoting. You see Proverbs often. You see the book of Leviticus, Exodus, Genesis, Joshua, Job, 1 Kings. So there are several um, different Old Testament books. And it's sometimes fun to go through a book and notice where the author is quoting. right? Um, and notice sometimes the style of his quotations and allusions. He doesn't always say, as Isaiah says. He just quotes it assuming that his readers are going to know what Isaiah is saying. And that's part of his style. That's part of his persuasive style. We all have... Um, okay, I, I don't know. I could say... Um, as Justin Bieber says, you have to love yourself. Go ahead and love yourself. Right? You all know what I'm talking about because you know about Justin Bieber and you know he has a song that's like that, right? So James, in speaking to this audience, he doesn't, you know, he can just say things expecting that his audience is going to be familiar with it. That's his context. All right, let's see here. Let's look for a moment now at some of the parallels between James and Peter. So in James 1.1, you will notice James refers to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And Peter refers to, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the spirits for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. They're both, I think, addressing the same audience, right? Um, there, and I, I don't think I've listed out the places to which the dispersion went, but Peter named some of the specific places. James just said scattered abroad. And then Peter, when he says abroad, he talks about Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But there, there's a lot of similarities there. All right, let's uh, see. What are some other similarities? In 1-2 of James, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Peter, in 1.6, says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, they're both talking about being joyful in trials because they are building patience and perseverance. In James 1.12, we read, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that in 1 Peter 5, 4, very similar. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Do you see they're both referring to a crown, a crown that's given as a reward. And let me just um, make a tangential point here, or maybe a hobby horse, or however you want to view it, but, but it's not wrong for Christians to look forward to rewards from God, right? We, we need to persevere. We need to press on in our faith. We need to grow in holiness. We need to expect that God is going to give us rewards. 
Now, we always have to keep this in mind. No matter what in our obedience, we are but unworthy servants, okay? And we never do anything. We never give God anything. We only return to him what he gives to us. And so it's never that God becomes our debtor. And so the rewards he gives us are actually, like I said earlier, crowning his own works. Nevertheless, God oftentimes motivates us by telling us, well, we receive, if you do this, you will receive this reward. Okay, now to help keep this straight, to whom are James and Peter speaking? Christians. They are speaking to justified people. They are speaking to people who have the Holy Spirit. They are speaking to people who are forgiven. They are speaking to people who have the grace of God. And they are telling them, work hard for the rewards that God promises. And guess what? God will supply you with the grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to do those things, and then God will crown his own rewards. All right, end of tangent. Let's look at maybe another, um, another example. In James 1.18, by the way, we've not even gotten out of chapter 1, and we've already seen four simulators. There are five of them in chapter 1 that I've identified. There could be more, right? That doesn't mean that's at the end of them. Um, James 1.18, of his own will, he, that is God, brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, first, I just want to, just the beauty of what James is saying here. God, the father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So God, who's perfectly good by his own will, right? Not by our will. No one compelled him. God, by his own will, he brought us forth. Think of like giving birth or like the earth giving rise to fruit, right? To, to the creation when the plants grew up out of the ground. God did this. How? By the word of truth. So God implanted his word in us, and that made us sprout, made us grow. That, here's the purpose, we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God, in redeeming Christians, is showing an example of what he's going to do with his creation. Right? We Christians are the first fruits. Remember, the first fruits are always... Um, at the beginning of the harvest in the hopes that God, uh, if you take the first fruits and devote them to God, then God will bless the rest of the crop. And so the Christian's uh, salvation is a first fruit. We Christians are, are an initial harvest that is dedicated to God with the expectation that God's going to do even more. And I think this has to do with um, you know, tongues and tribes and nations and families and children and grandchildren. And, um, you know, at some point, the whole earth, right? The whole, God is going to, at some point, um, have his complete will on the whole earth, right? Righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. All right, uh, now let's come to Peter. Um, Peter 1, 3, and 23, and 2, 1. All right, so in 1, 3... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that similar language, God has begotten us, right? Gave birth to us. Now, understand this, these are figures of speech, but we talk about being born again, similar to 
you know, fruit coming from the earth, similar to a child being born, God has begotten us. Uh, let's look at one more in verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And then notice what he does. He quotes from the Psalms, Peter does, all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's very similar to James, isn't it? Um, but he's talking about we are born again, not of, you know, now he, his metaphor is even more explicit. We're born by seed. Humanly speaking, that's how babies are conceived and born, right? But in this case, the seed is not human seed. It is actually the incorruptible word of God. So when you hear and believe the word of God, that brings about your birth. All right. Um, I don't have a... 1002. 10 okay, let's wrap up um, just a couple of things. So because the book of James is proverbial in its style, um, it's not as easy to outline. Um, it's... But I think we can note several topics that I, I intend to be sort of the outline of our class. And that's as follows. There's the greeting, which we've discussed today. Next week, Lord willing, we will get to the topics of testing, wisdom, riches, gifts, the tongue, faith, and then true religion, which is that cares for widows and orphans, right? Sometimes, and this is maybe getting cliche at this point, but, but when I was a new Christian, People would always say, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. But James says, no, Christianity is a religion, right? Um, and it is a religion, and there's no shame in that. There's nothing wrong with that. But then we will move down through different topics from favoritism to restoring a sin brother. Now, some do like to outline the book in a traditional fashion, and I give you from Nelson's uh, book of maps and charts, and they see basically faith is, is the motif, the, the controlling subject. And there's the test of faith, the characteristics of faith, and the triumph of faith. So, and I think that's reasonable. Uh, you know, it, it's as good as any other outline. Um, but also, not every part in those sections corresponds as neatly to the theme as we would like it to. Because sometimes, like I said, he's, it's like the book of Proverbs where you're not sure, is that proverb related to the one that just came before it, or is he changing subjects now? And maybe the more times we read through it, we start to see the connections. Um, and he does definitely make progress as he's moving through the book, right? He begins talking about faith, and he begins fleshing it out, and he gets to the end, and he begins showing more and more what true faith is like. And so there's definitely that theme there. All right. At the end, I've given you a chart of um, the Sermon on the Mount, in which uh, James quotes um, extensively, right? And I won't belabor you now with going through them, but just know, you know, and I hope this will be a resource for you that you can compare James's teaching to Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to whom was Jesus speaking at the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> Believers. Right? He was speaking to professed believers, to the visible church, to those who had followed him and believed in him. Similar to James, right? Um, one thing, there's a historian, Eusebius, 
And he quotes another historian, um, but they refer to James. Um, James got another nickname. So not only James the brother of the Lord, but his nickname was James the camel's knees. He had knees like a camel. The reason why is camels have these pads on their knees. Because you ever see how camels, when they rest, they're kneeling down, and their, their knees develop calluses. And James... develop those calluses on his knees. I'm going to get having some allergies this morning. (laughs) And it is said that um, because of his not having believed in the Lord until after the resurrection, he spent so much time praying for others to come to faith in the Lord. And And so I, I think that is the heart of James, right? He, he is someone who was skeptical and hard-hearted to Jesus, but then was transformed and was made alive and then devoted the rest of his life until his knees got calluses like camels. Yeah. All right, so um, most of the book of James is pretty easy to understand. Um, there'll be a few points at which we need to do some exegesis and some comparison and try to work out difficulties, but really, most of it is easy to understand. Um, like, I'll give you just an example. Um, let's see. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That's easy to understand. Don't, many of you should not be teachers. Why? Well, because teachers will be judged with more strictness. Very easy to understand on the surface. Um, Sometimes harder to accept, right? There's a lot of things like that in James where it's easy to understand, but it's hard for us to receive or obey. And that's really the, the tip, I think, to reading the book of James. Meaning is pretty plain oftentimes, but, but the difficulty is um, we come back to that issue of are we sitting in the judgment seat over God, you know, telling him what his word ought to say, or are we submitting ourselves to the word of God and letting it teach us? Uh, Mark Twain um, had a saying that um, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand which trouble me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) Right? And, And Mark Twain really wasn't a Christian, I don't think. But he was, he, he was on to an observation there, right? It's, there's, there's going to always be parts of Scripture that are mysterious to us, and, and maybe one day the Lord will grant us wisdom to understand them. But most of the Bible, and especially the book of James, is very understandable. We get what it means. But what troubles us is that it's going to require from us repentance, faith, obedience, putting off some behaviors, maybe losing something, you know, is going to require us to actually live according to what it says. And that's the real difficulty. All right, I'm going to stop right there. Um, I would uh, be available for any questions, but let me pray for us and, and we'll move on.